It's back to school time. In this episode, I chat with Laura Reber about parents and students and how they can navigate learning disabilities, ADHD, autism, and more, all of which can impact a child's educational journey. Learn how to get the resources you need and why getting an official diagnosis is important. Hope you enjoy the show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, we are covering a topic that is so important, and that is about learning disabilities. I'm chatting with Laura Reber, a school psychologist and founder of Progress Parade. At Progress Parade, they know what makes you different makes you strong. They provide one-to-one online tutoring with hand-picked specialists for students who have been diagnosed with ADHD, learning disabilities, executive functioning challenges, autism, and more. Laura works with a team of school psychologists and specialized teachers to create personalized approaches for homework support, academic intervention, homeschooling, unschooling, and more. Laura graduated as valedictorian with a bachelor's in psychology from Truman State University and continued to earn her specialist in school psychology from Illinois State University. She's been working as a school psychologist for over a decade. With her teams of tutors, she has successfully supported over a thousand students in turning learning challenges into life-changing achievements. Love it. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I think this is going to be such an important episode for students and parents alike because there are so many mental health considerations when it comes to this particular topic. So let's dive right in. I know you have so much experience working with students with learning disabilities. And just so we kind of get on the same page, can you explain what is a learning disability and how that is defined and how might it affect a student? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, maybe this sounds obvious to say, but the first criteria for learning disability is definitely the struggling with learning. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, the mo- yeah, most commonly um, students, you know, are struggling with math, reading or writing. Those are the three big areas that typically qualify for a learning disability. And the schools now, um, without diving too much into the, the details, typically they give students some intervention. It's called response to intervention, if anybody wants to dig more into that topic. But essentially, they like to give a student some support, see how they respond to that support. So by support, I mean, like, for example, if they're struggling with reading, they would give them some reading support, maybe in a small group, maybe one-on-one um, to teach them, you know, kind of in a smaller group how to read. And if they don't respond to that, if they're still struggling, not catching up or even falling further behind, then they start to consider that the student might have a learning disability. So that's a big way that students, that schools are diagnosing learning disabilities. You can also get an outside evaluation 
which is, looks at kind of different criteria. But yeah, essentially looking at the learning and how the students are responding to their instruction. And if they're struggling and it's causing some issues, then they might meet the criteria for a learning disability. So I have a question. So I know that a lot of students learn in different ways. There's audio learners, visual learners, kinetic learners. At what point can we decide that it is a learning disability and not just a different type of learning, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I think um, it's really about the severity of the challenge and how much the challenge is affecting your student, you know, the student's life. Like if the student is able to get by and not really, it's, you know, the school's not really seeing it and they're not really suffering severe consequences because of it. Like say it's, you know, they just learn the information in a different way. Well, if that's working for them, then there's no reason to diagnose them with a learning disability. I think find the workarounds or the, the ways of taking in the information that works for the student and do it, you know, but if, if parents are not able to find, or if, teachers are not able to find a way that works for the student. And if they are falling behind their classmates and that's starting to reflect in their confidence and in grades and in work completion, then that's, you know, probably the place where it's time to start looking at, um, looking at getting them more support, for example, through the, through the disability, you know, process. Thank you so much for sharing that. So I'm curious, you know, for parents who might suspect that their child has a learning disability, but they might not be sure, what next step should they take both for themselves and their child? Yeah, that's a great question. So my biggest advice is if you suspect your students struggling in a particular area, then go ahead and get them support. Um, whether that's support at home or whether it's support from an outside tutoring you know, service. If you're seeing challenges with reading, then there's no reason to not go ahead and start teaching them how to read or working with them at home or, or hiring a tutor because there's a lot of data to, and a lot of research to support the effectiveness of early intervention. So kind of the sooner we can catch problems, the better. So my biggest advice would be if you're seeing a challenge, work on that challenge, you know, one way or another, it's really not going to hurt your student to get extra support from you or from outside help. And then, you know, if you're feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm working with my child at home, it's really not enough. They're still falling further behind. Then um, there's kind of two different routes you can go. And there's, we can talk about the different factors that might help parents make this decision if you want. But yeah, uh, yeah essentially, you know, you can ask, Every parent in America, at least, has a right to request an evaluation from school. So, you know, I always recommend to parents, if you want to request an evaluation, make sure you do so in writing. Find out who, like, it can really be to the teacher or to the administrator or to anybody. I would recommend sending it to somebody, like, probably like a school psychologist, like in my position, because we know what to do with those requests. But it can go to, to the principal too, but yeah, request an evaluation in writing and say, you know, here's the challenges I think my child has. Here's what I've seen. If you have like grades or, you know, state testing or local testing that you can attach when you um, ask for the evaluation, that's going to help, um, help them understand where you're coming from. So one is the school. You can request it at the school and then, they have to respond to your request. It doesn't mean they have to do the evaluation, but they do have to respond and say, yes, we'll do the evaluation and here's the next steps or no, we won't do the evaluation and here's why. 
So one option is requesting it at the school. And the other is, of course, you can hire somebody privately to do an evaluation, usually a psychologist or um, some some people like to go to neuropsychologists. Um, then then those those are two kind of outside people that you can go to to get an evaluation as well. And then, of course, that would be privately paid if you go to the school then it will be free of cost. It's, it's, that's paid for by the school. Okay, so you mentioned privately paid. Would insurance by chance cover that or no? So that's um, that's something that you could ask the, the potential evaluators because some accept insurance, some don't. And the insurance question is constantly changing. And it's um, so they would be able to give more details on exactly what your insurance would cover. I do, the short answer is insurance does sometimes cover I don't think it usually covers all of the evaluation. And I think there's a lot of variability and that's that answer is changing a lot. So yes, I think insurance is something to consider and to try to use in the evaluation privately. Okay, perfect. Thanks so much for clarifying that. Yeah. yeah so parents can definitely get help with the school or look for private assistance, but know that it may cost something. Just want to cover all the mental health and wealth stuff when we're talking about all of sure. this stuff. So yeah. I know that you work in particular with a lot of students that have ADHD and autism. And so I'm curious, like, what are the challenges that these particular students face in the current school system? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one I think that, um, you know, people are starting to think more and more about as we think about diversity and inclusion of all kinds as a society. I think that's a a question that's more been front and center lately, um, which is great. So, yeah, I think one thing to keep in mind for students that have been diagnosed with ADHD is that that can be just really hard to tease apart from other challenges. For example, in children, anxiety can look a lot like ADHD. If a child's anxious, it can be really hard to focus. It can cause, you know, we've all experienced anxiety. We're on the we're on your podcast. So we have some sense of mental health. Yeah. So we know that it can make you feel really jittery. It can Anxiety can be a really energizing feeling. It can feel like you have a lot too much energy sometimes, like if that kind of wells up inside of you. So, you know, that can look like hyperactivity if if there's kind of a lot of anxiety energy in there. So I think one thing for teachers to be aware of is I think we're just so quick to bring up ADHD as the concern because it is so common and something that is a lot of students struggle with, you know, but I think it's really important for teachers to be aware just that it's, we want to have a professional make any diagnoses and not jump straight to a particular diagnosis or particular thought of what the diagnosis might be, because there are a lot of um, challenges that kind of look similar to each other and children, you know, are still developing their language. They're still developing their ability to share what's going on and to share their experience. So, they might not be able to articulate, like, I'm feeling nervous, you know, they might not even know that yet, you know, so it's just really important, I guess, to kind of recognize that in children, um, it can be hard to tease apart different, different challenges. And then I think another challenge to recognize, this is a big one for autism, that, you know, the student may be having an experience, like, students with autism often struggle with sensory challenges like smells or lights or sounds. And we might not even perceive or notice like how intense that is, you know, like um, we might not smell the smell that to them smells so strong, like someone's perfume or something. 
and same thing with lighting or sound. So I just think it's important to kind of be aware of, of the environment and, you know, things like that can really be a challenge. Like if you're feeling a lot of, um, yeah, sensory overload in a certain environment or if, or if, or if a certain thing is really feeling negative to you or feeling hard to, to perceive that can also cause a lot of, a lot of academic challenges. So I think those are just some challenges to be aware of and, you know, it can help teachers to kind of understand that when they're dealing with diverse learners. That's such a good point. And I love that you mentioned that it's really important to get the right diagnosis and that a lot of these mental health conditions and learning disabilities have overlapping symptoms. So it could be anxiety. It could be a different phase of their life where, you know, they're learning how to express themselves in different ways and we're not quite sure. And so, you know, I think that's such a good point that we should wait for a professional diagnosis and make sure that we're open to all possibilities and, you know, definitely looking at the big picture. And so what would you say are the hallmarks of ADHD and autism? You know, if someone's thinking that that may be the diagnosis. Yeah. So ADHD, and this is why it can be hard to tease apart from something like anxiety, because it looks different kind of across the age groups, but what's consistent is, um, and it depends on the types because ADHD can be an attentive type, hyperactive type or combined type. So, you know, if you're looking at ADHD, the more inattentive type, that's the one that can be a little harder to detect because it's not kind of in your face as much. Uh, You know, the student might just be zoning out. They might be, you know, missing big pieces of instruction because they're distracted by something that is going on on the other side of the room or in the hallway. It's just really hard for them to pay attention, you know, to really pay attention to what's going on. So the inattentive type that's, you're going to see more inattention and the hyperactive type is going to be a lot easier to see or a lot harder to miss maybe because Mm -hmm. those students are a lot more likely to be bothering their peers and up out of their seat. And that tends to be kind of more disruptive to the classroom setting. So, um, you know, but again, like somebody could be inattentive because of their, they're having anxious thoughts or they could be hyperactive because of anxiety. So there's a lot of overlap in the symptoms and, uh, you know, a professional is really going to be the one that can best kind of tease that apart. And I think teachers are really well-intentioned. They want students to get the support that they need. So it can be really tempting to kind of pull a parent aside and say, hey, I think like maybe you should look at an ADHD diagnosis. But I think a better thing to say is just to share what you're observing, which is, hey, like I've noticed that your student you know, like after I've gone over something in class, like doesn't seem to be taking it in or they seem to be missing a lot of information. And I just wonder if this is like, you know, something you might want to talk to them about or maybe um, just consider if there's might be something going on here. I have no idea what it might be, but I just wanted to share my observations. So I think it's helpful, very helpful for teachers to share their observations, but just not to jump to conclusions right away. Such a perfect point. And that leads perfectly into my next question, you know, kind of on the same vein of what could teachers or school administrators do to help the mental health and well-being of students with non-traditional learning abilities? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, um, you know, what benefits diverse learners often does generate um, benefit all students. So a lot of these tips, I think, it'll make the classroom better for everybody, you know, diverse learners and, and general education students too. 
Most diverse learners do uh, respond to a lot of structure. So just having like a clear schedule to the day, like knowing what to expect, like previewing, you know, like here's what we're going to cover in this classroom. Here's the schedule that we're going to cover it. Here's kind of what I'm hoping we'll get done. And even like structure in the classroom. So, you know, here's kind of where we, uh, you know, for younger students, like here's where we play with each other and here's where in the classroom we're expected to sit in our seats and here's where we do centers. Those are um, kind of more tangible or physical examples of structure, but just the more that students know what to expect and what you're expecting of them in the classroom and in, in different parts of the classroom and in different classes is so helpful to especially students with ADHD and autism, but also really all students. Uh, Visuals can help a lot with structure. So one of the hallmarks of students with autism is struggling with language. So having visuals can help out with that, like just help them kind of process, like here's what's coming, here's what's expected of me. Um, That can help a lot. So pairing visuals with text is another way that teachers can really help diverse learners. And all this kind of rolls into clear expectations. I think, you know, it can we can assume that, well, like they should just act like they should in the classroom, like they should know mm-hmm. that, but just saying exactly what that means. Like, I want you to raise your hand before you speak. And if, um, you know, before you get out of your desk, you need to raise your hand and ask permission. And these are the things I expect you to get done with the independent work time we've got, just being super clear is very helpful. And when things go wrong, you know, the best thing you can do is not to take the behavior personally. It can be really easy to get upset or to think they are not respecting you or that it's kind of a little personal, but it's really not. You know, students with with diverse learning needs, they might be struggling with anxiety, struggling with sensory challenges, struggling to manage their, all the sensory processes going on. So you know, it's, it's easy to just, it's best to just redirect with restating your expectations or following through with whatever consequences you have in your classroom, rather than kind of engaging emotionally with the student is kind of another tip. Um, And my final tip is to decide what to let go. I mean, you know, I've heard some teachers say, well, I can't get the student to sit in their seat to learn. And so I'm like, well, is there some way you can put them in, you know, standing somewhere where they can fidget around with something in an appropriate way that won't be distracting so that we can kind of meet them where they are too. There's sometimes some battles that just aren't worth fighting, you know, so trying to, trying to tease those apart too. Um, So that's for the teacher. Yeah. Such great points. And I love that you mentioned kind of setting expectations. And I always think this is such an important point, just as effective communicators, as children, adults, whomever, you know, just setting expectations of what people want, what people are expecting, just so that everyone can be on the same page. So yeah, and I think that's such a great point. And for teachers and school administrators to not take this personally and to recognize that there are diverse behaviors and learning abilities in the classroom. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And I think the administrators kind of to take that a step further, we want to, you know, try to find alternatives to suspension or detention when things go wrong. A lot of research shows that kind of those punitive ways of responding to behavior are not the most effective. So trying to find things like counseling, like can they 
meet with a school social worker or a school counselor to kind of figure out what's what was the cause of their behavior. I mean, behavior is communication. So it's telling us something, you know, mm -hmm. or can we have a behavior contract with them or behavior plan rather than jumping straight to kind of the old the oldies like suspension and detention. It's not the best. It's not the best way to respond to behavior challenges. I mean, I'm hoping that we can move as a as schools and as society towards more um, more kind of teaching people and, you know, supporting them. A lot of times suspension just ends up with the kid at home playing video games all day and didn't really teach them anything that's going to be beneficial for them longer term. So looking for creative and alternative ways on a building level to respond is definitely one of my big recommendations. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point because I think this detention suspension model really kind of integrates this kind of shame and blame model that starts at such a young age. And as I know with so many of my other podcast episodes, shame and blame and guilt and anxiety are huge mental health concerns and can be triggered by particular situations where you feel like you've done something wrong, where you feel like yeah. you're not good enough, where you feel like you don't fit in. And so if someone's dealing with neurodiversity or different learning abilities, that could feel like, oh, something's wrong with me. I don't fit in. I did something wrong. And that can be internalized and can affect Definitely. them much longer yeah. than you might even realize. Like you might just think, oh, well, they're just going to you know, have one afternoon or whatever by themselves. But it's like that could affect them for much longer in their self-esteem as well. Yes, definitely. I mean, I, I think um, repeated kind of punishment like that is, you know, really does tend to lead to students that become more and more disengaged. I mean, at a certain point, it's a lot, you know, quote unquote, cooler to not care about school than to try and fail, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think it can definitely lead to a spiral, a negative spiral that um, that goes far beyond but far beyond that detention. So I think, you know, looking for ways to, to encourage positive behavior instead of punishing, especially when it comes to, yeah, those big, those big kind of um, almost stigmatizing reactions. I mean, your, your peers know when you've been suspended and, you know, I think, so it's just kind of, there's so many components of that that are just not helpful, you know? So it's like, we need to find a different way to react to, to respond, respond to the behavior and, and try to get to the bottom of giving, of educating and supporting and giving them what they need rather than punishing. So. Yes, totally agree with that. And so, you know, I want to talk to you about dealing with a diagnosis around a learning disability or mental health condition that can affect learning. So for parents and students who, you know, maybe they have sought out professional help and they've received a legit professional diagnosis of ADHD, of autism, some other kind of learning disability that is affecting their life and their mental health. You know, these diagnoses can feel like a huge blow. And so what are some ways that students and parents can cope with that and, you know, either decide that this is a label that I want or maybe I don't want it? Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of a few ways that you can approach it and we can um, spend some time talking about this. I think if you want if you think the label is like helpful and it's something that you want to embrace, I think that you can recognize it's very common, you know. I mean, it's very common and you can, you know, when you research start to research people that have these diagnoses, you can really find ways 
And it's true. I mean, it sounds maybe a little cliche or something, but it's really true that there are kind of ways that these disabilities can work for you. You know, like ADHD, mm-hmm. kids with ADHD tend to think outside the box, which doesn't always work well in a school setting when you're supposed to kind of abide by certain expectations, but it can be really helpful for starting a business or for coming up with new ideas or being creative. People with autism often become experts in their fields of interest. They can find an intensity of interest that is so admirable in a specific topic and learn so much about that. So there really are kind of um, strengths, I think, to everybody's personality, you know, and we all have strengths and weaknesses to our personalities, whether or not we meet diagnostic criteria for a disability. So I think just kind of taking the whole picture can help some people cope with that. I mean, there truly are, you know, celebrities out there and really influential people that have ADHD and learning disabilities and autism. So there are some kind of ways to to make the disability work for you and to find the kind of superpowers that live in that disability. And there's so many groups out there that people can join and just find support and find, you know, kind of people that understand where you're coming from. So I think, you know, that's kind of ways to, to deal with it or to kind of cope with that, with that information. I think something to also be aware of is that, um, (laughs) I don't know how exactly to say this, but the reality is, is that disabilities are, if you're kind of more like, well, I don't even know if I think this is true. I'm not sure if it really helps me or if it's um, a label that I really want for myself. I think it's also fine to recognize that the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is how most people diagnose things, is something we kind of made up as humans. You know, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not, um, you know, and it's, it wasn't even made up like super scientifically. It's really just based on professional consensus. So you can also kind of opt out if you want, <laughs> you know, like yeah. you don't have to, you don't have to, um, I, I guess like, you know, some people find the disability labels empowering and they find that it helps them find community and advocate for themselves and understand themselves. If you find it to be disempowering or something that doesn't help you, it also doesn't have to be the end all be all, you know, you get to, you get some stay, say in that. So I guess that's my point. Yeah, that's such a great point. And, you know, I always say that on the mental health and well show that whatever you are dealing with does not have to be your identity. Like, for example, I have anxiety and depression and OCD. And while I do claim those things as part of my identity, I don't let it define me or my worth. And I just use that as information on how I react and what I need to live a fulfilling life. And so Like you said, you can find community in those labels, or you can say, I don't think this label is for me, but you can also just use it as a data point and say, okay, this is information. Let me see what's relevant, what's not, and how can I use that in my favor and to my advantage? Definitely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one thing to recognize the DSM, which is the manual, the the diagnosing manual I refer to, it's constantly changing. I mean, it's currently in the fifth version. So, you know, our knowledge of, of diverse learning needs and of disabilities is constantly evolving as is evidenced by all the revisions of the manual that we use. And, and I see all the time people's diagnoses change, like Kind of for the example I alluded to earlier, like ADHD versus anxiety or, you know, even ADHD versus autism can have really similar 
um, looks, you know? So, Mm -hmm. uh, those are, you know, sometimes kids or even adults get one diagnosis and then they go to another professional who they, who understands them better, who has a more comprehensive view, or they get better self-knowledge and advocate better for themselves. And, um, and so our understanding can change, which can mean a changed diagnosis, you know? So it's not like wherever you are at this moment is the final stop. The field is changing, you're changing, and, you know, that's really exciting. I mean, we're continuing to learn what people need and how to support them. So. Yes. Amazing. So I'm curious, you know, how can parents set up their children for success if they're dealing with a learning disability? That's a great question. So um, I kind of alluded to this earlier too, but I think get support as soon as you sense a challenge. That's, that's the most important thing, I think, because the early intervention does help. Like it helps on multiple fronts because it helps problems and challenges tend to get more complex the older students get. For example, if a student's struggling to read in first grade, then they're still, all their peers are still learning to read. They're reading relatively simple, um, you know, like decodable words, like predictable words and sight words. As they get older, that gap can really grow. Their peers are reading, you know, science texts and social studies texts. So, um, and then in addition to the gap growing academically, it's also starts to be like a, a story, you know, like the more they struggle, the more they have a story that they're struggling or they're, they're bad at something, the more their confidence is likely to drop too. So my biggest thing is to get support and get it as early as you, um, as you can. Second thing is to definitely focus on the student's strengths too. I think a lot of times when a student's get, student gets a learning disability diagnosis that we tend to focus on that area. Like if they have a math disability, let's get them tons of math help. And, you know, they might get a plan at school to work on math with people there, but we want students to continue to develop their strengths and to get, get attention for that too. You know, like, okay, you're really, math is a struggle for you, but you're a really strong reader. So let's really develop that too. You know, I think it's important not to just focus on the struggle, but focus on the areas of strengths too. And I think kind of my third suggestion is don't hesitate to take workarounds when they're available and needed. I think, um, you know, for example, I've seen so many students like struggle with handwriting and just struggle so much. And, um, you know, certainly it's worth it to, to work on it and to work on the motor aspects and everything of handwriting. But if it's a struggle for a long time, then you know, at a certain point, it's maybe time to decide, use, use typing, you know, we don't have to die on this hill. So I think um, a lot of times there are kind of workarounds that work and it's, it can be helpful to kind of take it and, and learn the strategies that work for you, whether or not it's like, was your original goal, you know? Yes. Love that. These are all such amazing, wonderful points. And so I wanted to follow up and ask, what are some of the mental health symptoms that might present themselves, you know, in students with learning disabilities? And also kind of what are the wealth implications for parents who may have to pay for certain services or help in regards to learning disabilities? Yeah, so um, mental health aspects of learning disabilities, um, you know, the diagnosis really has to do more with learning. So there's not like a direct kind of social emotional impact of learning disability, but certainly, you know, academic implications. Like if you're struggling with reading, then 
the mental health implication could be confidence issues or self-doubt or depression even, if that's something that you keep trying and trying and trying and it's not leading you to the results that you're wanting, that can be really frustrating and, and can definitely lead to some mental health challenges if, if not addressed. So certainly I think if parents are seeing that their child with a learning disability is starting to seem really down on themselves and if it's, you know, I wouldn't hesitate to get them some, some counseling or some support to just help them turn that around, to help them recognize that everybody's got strengths and weaknesses and to help them kind of learn to advocate for themselves and ask for what they need and just process everything that comes with that with the professional. Um, as far as the question around, yeah, the um, implications for wealth, if, if your student does have a learning disability, parents luckily do have some options. So if they get, if they have a learning disability and, and they've met that criteria at school, then all those services are provided um, at no charge. So that's, you know, taxpayers, we have, we provide as a nation, a free and appropriate public education as it's called. And that includes for diverse learners. So, um, you know, so they, th those services will be provided at school for no cost. And then for parents who want to pursue additional services, like the ones we have at Progress Parade, that's also an option too. If you feel like, you know what, I just want to get some one-on-one -on -one support and they're not doing one-on-one -on -one at school. If it's something you want to supplement, then that's always an option too. And, you know, different services have different implications for insurance. I know that's one thing you brought up. So tutoring or specialized academic services usually are not covered by insurance, but sometimes there are like, you know, health savings accounts or things that can be used for, for those kinds of services. So those are things that you could explore directly with whatever agency you're, you're talking to. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so my last question is, I'm curious, how can people work with you? And what does that kind of setup look like for parents that might be interested? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, there's a lot of information on progressparade.com, which is our website. Um, everybody who contacts us or everybody who's interested in services gets a free consultation. So if they were to visit us on progressparade.com, they could click on book a free consultation. It's right on that first homepage there. Those actually all come to me. So if you book a free consultation, you'll have a conversation with me. And I just really try to get a good idea of like, what is your student's history? Um, what are their goals? Like, you know, just what's the whole background of that's, that's leading you to reach out to me? And what kind of, how would you know that tutoring is a success? Like what, what things would you see change? So we get all that information. I answer any questions that the parent has. And then our biggest passion or our biggest thing that we focus on is making the right match. So we want to find a tutor who is matched to the student in their academic needs and any social, emotional, or diverse learning needs that they have. So essentially we make a match, introduce, introduce the parent to the match, and then they can ask any questions or get scheduling. So it's, we really try to make it like simple for the parent and as easy as possible. Love that. And what is your website and where can people find you? Yeah, they can find us at progressparade.com or also on, you know, any of the social media that's out there. We're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn. So wherever people kind of want to follow us, but book a free consultation with me right there on our website too. Awesome. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation. I super appreciate you sharing all this wonderful information and I appreciate you sharing your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here.
Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.